I actually got quite excited about while I was on holiday. I was you know, away for three weeks or so in California visiting our new grandson. And, and during my quiet times, I started reading about someone called Stephen. And uh, he has really excited me. And so we're going to go through this little teaching. We're going to learn a little bit more about St- Stephen. And I hope that you're going to be encouraged. But to begin at the beginning, in these days, sorry, thank you, in these days, this is an unusual time we're living in. Lots of things are being turned upside down. I find myself wondering whether the Lord himself wasn't, in, in some sense, involved in, in Susan Boyle's uh, story and this sudden prominence that she's enjoying. Because she, she is not your typical, you know, celebrity type. Also this, you know, last week I spoke about integrity and, uh, and many of you appreciated that, mission, uh, that, that message. But, but the, the, the turmoil, the upheaval we're seeing in our political system, it's as, if, it's as if suddenly, through the newspapers as it were, we have a voice, a way of protesting about the way we're being led and, and, and that character is an issue. For too long... People have fobbed us up and saying, my private life is my own, my public life is yours. But actually, character does matter. And now we're beginning to see those who have you know, exploited the system being vilified in the press. Sometimes, perhaps, they go a little too far. I heard Frank Cook on the television last night. We got in, first and I'd been away for a couple of days, turned the television on very late. and He was very defensive and very shaken because... They've discovered he, he claimed for five pounds to put in the memorial service. Well, I think that's perhaps a bit silly to have the chap on, you know, the news program and, and, and raving at him. Maybe we're going too far now. But, but in all of this, one has a sense that we are living in extraordinary times. You know, it, it, it's been said before, but it's worth remembering we have President Barack Obama... A, the first black president in, in the United States. We are seeing extraordinary things. Some things at the macro level and some things at the micro level. Something is going on. Something is afoot in these times. And, and this morning I'm going to begin on what we call the Day of Pentecost. It's a church festival Many churches are celebrating it in grand style. Unfortunately, we we can't rise quite to that. But we do this in our own way. And it's real and it's honest and hopefully helpful too. So let's read a little reading here from Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. In those days, the number of disciples was increasing. And the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread 
the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, I said last week, sort of in parenthesis, and it's perhaps more relevant this week, that the first five chapters of the Acts of the Apostles are an exciting, awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping initiation to church. If, if you, like me, uh, had or have a rather sort of chagrin version, uh, vision and, and understanding of church, the first five chapters of the book of Acts will completely blow your socks off, and that's a theological term. It is an extraordinary time. Literally thousands come to faith. There are healings left, right, and center. And, and these broken down, and that's what they were, broken down men and women, 120 or so, utterly defeated by the fact that their, you know, what they thought was a victory parade turned into a, 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 a public execution. And, and, and they are absolutely broken. And yet the Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost, on this day we call Pentecost, and, and transforms them. Now, I want to say in the wink of an eye, but it's actually not quite like that because the Spirit of God doesn't work like that. But the Holy Spirit comes upon them and gives them great boldness and courage to share the good news of Jesus. And that should always be the first purpose of the church, to share the good news of Jesus. And in case you're not clear what that is, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He knows you by name. He loves you. He came to earth to die for your sins because sin is the very thing that keeps us from God. So if you've always believed in God but feel distance from him, I've got good news for you this morning. Jesus knows your pain, to use that cliche. Jesus has come and he has died to deal with the sin, which is the very thing that keeps you separate and apart from God. Now, because he has dealt with that, now you can enter in and enjoy the Father's presence. There's good news. We can know God. We can know God as Father. We can know Him intimately. And all because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross, paid the punishment, the price for our sins. So that's the good news we're operating in. So the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost takes these broken down men and women, utterly discouraged, all their plans, all their hopes, all their aspirations in tatters, and turns them around. And the next thing you know, they're bundling down the stairs from the upper room which they'd been renting, down into the streets, telling the story that I've just told you with great power, with great conviction, with great sacrifice in some cases. And it is extraordinary. It's like a tidal wave, a tsunami breaking upon Jerusalem at that time. And thousands, literally thousands, suddenly get it. I knew God was a God of love. I have always felt separate from him. And now he has rescued me. Glory, hallelujah. There is a saviour. One or two are smiling. That's lovely. They should be. Let's all pretend we're Pentecostals and shout hallelujah. One, two, three. Hallelujah! Oh, boy, that felt good. Let's do it again. I felt very good. One, two, three. Hallelujah! Even my wife's smiling. That's great. She doesn't like that kind of thing. Okay. Okay. By the way, I, I'm sorry. This is distracting. I have to ask a question here. You know... I've noticed that the front two seats, except for two rows, except for, 
for dear Peter sat right down here, are empty. Now, Peter is sat in a raincoat. Is that because I, I spit and everybody doesn't want to sit in the front? Two? I'm teasing him. He's not in a raincoat. But he, I thought, is it because I spit? People don't want to sit in front of the front two rows. But anyway, that's, just, that's apropos of absolutely nothing. It's just a preacher's insecurities, all right? Okay. Okay, let's get into this text because I, I, I you know, Holy Spirit, please, um, it's wonderful to have your presence here and be in your presence. But we, we want to take something away that will give us life, and help us and encourage us. So the first little thing then, the situation here, it's, it's all kicking in. First five chapters, you can't put a foot wrong. And then in verse 1 of chapter 6, church starts to happen. Now, I wish I couldn't. I wish I, I didn't say it in quite that way, but I have done. But church starts to happen because what happens is that the Greek widows in the community start complaining about the, he, the Jewish widows because it would seem that for some reason the Jewish widows are being favored in the daily distribution of food and they're not getting enough. So suddenly a bit of complaining, a bit of grumbling goes on. And if you've been in part of the church or the church for as long as I have, you know, there are issues that crop up from time to time. One or two more rice smiles. And so the apostles, who are kind of, you know, just barely keeping up with what God is doing, trying to sort of manage and lead and, and, and work together with God in this, they're confronted with this issue. It will not go away. This is actually going to trip them up. And so they say, they say, it would not be right. Thank you, James. It would not be right for us to neglect the word of God. Now, I just want to pause for a moment. This is not the main point of my, my, my sermon, but, but two things to say about that. The apostles, the leaders are saying it would not be right for us to neglect the word of God. I want to say, studying God's word in a follower of Jesus' life has to take priority. It is not right that I or you, for any reason, neglect studying the Word of God. Not only because it's a way of gathering information, which is almost, almost the least of the benefits of studying the, studying the Word of God, but because it actually reads us. We read it, we think we're reading it, but it reads us. And what I mean by that is that the Holy Spirit uses it to speak into our lives, and suddenly it's like we're looking at a mirror, seeing ourselves in a new light. And sometimes it's encouraging. Sometimes the mirror says to us, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And that is a primary message that God wants to say to you. That once you've dealt with that sin with Jesus, when you've gone to Jesus and said, please, will you forgive my sin too, Jesus? Please, I want to live for you. I want to give my life to you. As you've done that, then, then the father comes back with you are my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. So that, that may be what the mirror says back to us, the word of God says back to us. But the other things, is it can challenge us about attitudes. It can challenge us about, about you know, our, our lifestyles. It can challenge us and inform us about choices we have made or are about to make. That's why I say we should not, not just the apostles, we should not neglect to read God's word. But I think I want to clarify something here that the text doesn't say, but I'm taking a bit of a liberty, but I'm going to do it anyway. They are not saying, we don't stack chairs, we don't mop floors, we don't serve at tables. We're the apostles. You know, we study God's word. You can do that. 
please don't bother us anymore. They're not saying that. Why do I say that they are not saying that? They are not saying that because Jesus was their master and their disciple for three years. And Jesus was the servant king. Jesus was the one who at this great feast or that great feast was often the first one to get up to to actually wash their feet when they were all saying, well, it's not my job, you do it. No, it's your turn, you do it. And then Jesus would get up and he would, he would take off his garment, taking on just, have, have just something around his waist like the servants did, and he would wash their feet. This was what he modeled. He said, you know, I have shown you how to serve and love one another, now do the same. So, so they're not saying apostles and leaders don't serve. Now this is not a setup, but I, and I will just share this simply because it's true. This week... Uh, Ray, our wonderful caretaker, had a week's holiday and justly deserved. And so we've had a lot of things happening in the building. And so we've all had to lend a hand. And I, you know, we've all lent hands. But as it happened, I was cleaning out the bowls in the gents' toilets. Now, am I, you know, that's just, it wasn't in, with this sermon in mind. It was just the reality. Sometimes a loony's cleaning and I think, flipping heck. And I look around for someone to uh, give it to and there's... They're all busy studying God's Word, and uh, all of a sudden there's an incredible interest in the book of Philemon, and so i got to do it. Um, but I say that because the apostles were servants, but the priority is studying God's Word, and they realized that this was a big job, you know, that this was actually not going to, this wasn't just a, a you know, a, a two-minute man- management decision, this was something that was going to need some managing so they, they presumably prayed, and then they, they, they said to the guy, the church at the time, they said, listen, okay, choose seven men among you. Choose seven men among you. You know, these are the guys that are going to take care of this ministry. You know, this is an important ministry. We want it to be done well, not just get, oh, Fred, he's, doesn't, he's not got nothing to do. Choose seven men among you. And they, they even said this, this, known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Choose seven, among, seven men among you known to be full of the spirit of wisdom. Now, I find that challenging. So they think, you know, okay, this is a good idea. Let's go and do that. They are looking for seven men, seven people who are known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. What really impacted me, and if you, if you forget everything else, take this away with you was what a reputation to have. As they went away and said, okay, well, that sounds like a good idea. Who shall we choose? You know, I covet that reputation. I I would love people to say of me, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, 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 Chris, he's full of the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit and wisdom. And these were the these weren't the star players. These were the Susan Boyles, obviously with a gifting, but in obscurity. You see, you don't have to be an apostle. You don't have to be Mother Teresa. Now there's someone, (laughs) Mother Teresa. Do you know it took her 18 years to get permission? To go to Calcutta to serve the poorest of the poor. 18 years. 
She kept asking for permission. She wrote, uh, for, for about seven years, she wrote a letter a day to her bishop asking for permission to be sent to Calcutta. She wore him down like a dripping tap. Oh, no, not another letter from Mother Teresa. Give me a break. And finally, she got permission to live in obscurity, serving the poorest of the poor, the oldest and sickest, the abandoned children in the slums of Calcutta. You know, when she was asked about this, she said, you know, there are many people who want to do great things for God. Very few are willing to do the small things. Many people wanting to do great things for God. Very few want to do the small things. But Jesus did a Susan Boyle on her. (laughs) Took her out of obscurity. Now everyone knows her. They're working on her canonization. I don't think she's been made a saint yet, but they're, they're working on that. See, God, God sees all. It was part of what I was saying last week. God sees the heart. He's looking for integrity, the Holy Spirit and wisdom. This is something that we can all aspire to. And I say aspire because I don't actually believe it's possible for us to do it without help. Ephesians 2.10 says that, We are all God's workmanship, and that's a great comfort to me. It's good to know that God is working on me. Somebody want to be a Pentecostal and shout amen? Amen. Thank you. Let's press on with this. Choose seven men among you. Now, I've got a whole list of things that that then happened because, of course, as you know, the story didn't end then, or as, as many of you know, it wasn't just the end of that little story. Okay, we got these seven guys, and off they go, and all was hunky dory. Well, actually, God started raising Stephen up, and there are a number of things here that, uh, that Stephen, the waiter, that basically was, it was a waiter of tables, things that started to be observed about him beyond wisdom and, and, and the Holy Spirit. First of all, he was full of grace and power, it turned out. Something began to kick in. With that servant heart, it seemed that God found a resting place in him. Because he had that servant heart, that humble heart. He, because it, it may not be that he was naturally humble. There are people that you meet like that who just have a humble disposition. But, you know, humility is a choice. I've found that to be true. Sometimes I have a raging dog of arrogance barking inside of me. And, and I am able to make a choice to serve. Because I want to be served. We all of us want to be the center of attention, the center of the universe, the center of reality. Some, one of those will probably relate to you in some way or another. And be served. But we can choose the servant's way. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He reigns and rules at the right hand of the Father. But he chose to be a servant, to don a servant's garb and wash the disciples' feet. That was a choice. So, what we have here is that this 
as Stephen takes on the servant's role, so we, we find that the Lord amplifies and adds to the grace that was upon him. Not only is he now full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, but there's power there as well. Next little screen. He did marvelous, he did great wonders and miraculous signs. Suddenly he's got a healing ministry. Now, you know, if you're involved in the feed ministry or some other ministry, you know, when we go out with Vineyard Active with Emma and the crew out there serving and mowing lawns and bagging up garden rubbish and doing this, that and the other, just sometimes just doing the washing up. Sometimes for old people, it's just changing a light bulb because they can't reach up to do it and it's been out for nine months. Oh, would you mind changing a light bulb? Very often when you're in that serving situation, it softens your heart. You find yourself moved with compassion. The next thing that seems to come most naturally to a Christian is to pray. Just before you leave, you say, very often, not always, but would you mind if I just prayed a blessing upon you? Oh, I'd love that. And then maybe the Lord gives you a word of knowledge. Rich taught on gifts of knowledge. You know, have you got a problem with your hip? Would you mind if I just pray for you? I'm not going to do a big thing, but just let me pray for you. And suddenly little miracles start happening. It seems very often that a humble spirit and a servant heart seem to be married with this gift of healing. It's an extraordinary thing. And so it's not, no great surprise that, that Stephen suddenly finds himself at this, the center of probably somewhat unwanted attention because he's there to serve tables, but he's praying for people and they're getting well. This thing is beginning to, to, to develop. But then, as things kick in, very often, not always, but as they kick in, as things begin to sort of look like there's a bit of success around, the critics come along. Uh, we've had our own share of criticism here. We had a whole bunch of Christians say that we shouldn't come to St. Albans. We shouldn't, shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't meet in this building. We shouldn't meet in that building. We had a bunch of Christians turf us out of a school that we were meeting because they objected to us being there. And these were, these wasn't the, this wasn't the non-church. These were Christians. These were believers. Well, the believers, not the Christians in this case, but... The, the Jewish religious leaders of the day started getting uppity about all this attention and all this success that, that Stephen is enjoying. And so he suddenly finds himself in trouble. In verse 12, as it says there, he was, he was persecuted. It says that they stirred up the people and the, and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the kind of religious court of the day. Uh, and they made false accusations against him. They, they, they said he had done things and said things that, in some cases, he, he was willing to own up to and other things he wasn't. But it was basically trumped-up charges, false accusations. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but, but all of us have had those, those really they're difficult to deal with because they're unjustified, these comments, these criticisms, these whisperings, come at you often because you're a believer. Sometimes it's just that you're the nicest person in the office and somebody gets jealous of that. But very often with this grace, and it's, it would be remiss of me to say this, with this grace of God, this gift of the Holy Spirit, there comes opposition. So be warned, be warned. Next little thing. At the end of it all, after they'd laid out all these accusations, it says in the Word of God, verse 15, that he had the face of an angel. Now, what does that mean? Was he sort of like glowing golden? Well, he might have been. He might have been. I don't have a problem with that. 
But to be honest with you, I, I think it's just, he was, everybody, it says that they looked at him intently and he had the face of an angel. And I think it was just plain to everyone in the flipping room that he was innocent. They were embarrassed. He had the face of a little child, not knowing what they were talking about. Like a little angel. That's my take on it. Could be wrong. I'm open to other suggestions, but it's there in the text, and that's what I've kind of deduced at this moment. He may have been radiant. He may have been a number of things, but I think he just looked like a little child. There was all this, this disgusting untruth yelled, and there were people all getting frothing at the mouth, and witnesses and false witnesses, and he just stood in the middle of it like a little kid, little, like a little angel. And they all felt, I, it doesn't say this in the text, but I bet they felt ashamed. Because it wasn't true. It was patently untrue. Next thing to say about this wonderful Stephen the waiter. He begins to speak. Now, there's an interesting thing here, and you might like to read it. It's pretty much the whole of chapter 7. We're not going to read it now. But, but uh, let me just read this. This is Stephen speaking. Brothers and fathers. I'll, it's not going to go up on the screen. I'll just read it to you. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. This is his response. The God of glory appeared to our fathers Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. Now, if you know this passage at all, you will know that he actually then goes through the whole of Jewish history. And that really reinforces my opening point and that was this, that even though he was just one of, the, one of the troops, he had not neglected God's word. He knew the word of God. He, he wasn't fumbling around saying, uh, well, yeah, so, uh, it, it, the Lord is my shepherd. I, I think it's in, uh, I, I, I think it's in Hakabakus or something like that. He knew his word, the word. Not because he was a preacher or a teacher, but because he just found... He kept, he found comfort in God's word. He found strength. He found insight. And what he does then, he doesn't, he, doesn't re- he doesn't react to these false accusations. He doesn't say, how dare you challenge me? I know you. I saw you down at the local brothel on the Sunday, and you call yourself a high priest. He didn't, none of this kind of tit-for-tat arguing that so often I'm inclined to break into, and we are. He just begins working through God's word. He has not neglected God's word. But then, you know, it says in God's word that when we are challenged, when we are persecuted, the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say. So I believe he had supernatural, he had divine help in that moment. The Holy Spirit stood beside him, was within him, rested upon him and said, hang on, son, I know what you want to do. Just take a rain check here. Okay. Breathe deep. Okay. Now, let's begin. Let's go do it this way. So he went through the scriptures. He demonstrated to them that although he was just a, a trooper, he knew the word. They couldn't fault him on that. He knew what God's word said. And he also knew that the things they were saying to him were not true. They were false accusations. But then in the end of it, God gives him some boldness that makes my toes curl. I put it down here as he spoke out against injustice. Uh, And and that's not the half of it. I'm I'm not going to read it. That's a little bit of homework. It'll make your toes curl too. 
Because at the end of it, he nails them in the nicest possible way. He just nails them. And he speaks out about injustice. He speaks truth. They'd been speaking lies. He speaks truth. And it finds its, its mark in them. Basically what he says is, you know, you guys, you're entrusted. There's a, there's a, a, a weight of responsibility upon you to keep God, watch, teach God's word. But what actually happens is that any, when anyone pops up with God's word, you kind of annihilate him. And Jesus was, was the last of many. You crucified him. Nobody was going to deny that. And yet he is the son of God. And it's in him, in his name, we feed the poor. It's in him we build community. It's in him we heal the sick. It's in him God does miracles through us. What you are seeing is vindication of the very one you crucified. And, you know, we've been saying the last few months that Christians need a, a Holy Spirit boldness to speak, about in, speak out against injustice, to, to provide a voice for those who cannot speak out for themselves. And we're working on that. We're not there yet, but we're, we're trying to step up to the plate on that. So he spoke out against injustice. He wasn't a doormat. I think he got right that prayer that I've often told you I pray. And my simple prayer is this. Father, let me be true to you and true to myself. So if I'm going into a situation which I'm a bit nervous and a bit apprehensive about, I will pray, Father, let me be true to you. In other words, I don't want to... Play or twist or manipulate your word in such a way as it suits my plan. My and I want to be true to you. I want to honour you. I want to walk with that, walk the royal way with that kind of dignity and and integrity that the word of God brings. But also, I want to be true to myself because you've made me as I am, uh, and I'm a work in progress for sure. But but I want to be true to myself, so I don't walk out of that meeting feeling like a doormat. One of our dear. Members of our congregation came up to me last week and wants to have a bit of a chat because in certain situations they feel like a doormat because they feel like they've given too much away and, uh, uh, and compromised themselves. And, I, and, and I, I can identify with that. I've been, you know, magnanimous in a situation, then I come away and I just do not have any peace about it because I've actually compromised something that, that is real and, and that is worthy. And I've, I've dishonored God, if you like, by not being true to myself. So... Dear old Stephen here was at least given grace in that moment to speak the truth and speak it in a way that honored God and did not compromise his personal integrity. Wow. I would love that gift. I'm in awe of what God did in Stephen. Now, the response to that, I'd love to say they all sort of said, Oh, how wonderful. Glory, hallelujah, amen. And they were all happy ever after. In fact, to be honest with you, as sometimes happens, they went berserk. They did not like being told by a waiter, a waiter, what to do or how to do it. And they stoned him, stoned him to death. As he was being stoned, a little insight. This is a bit of a mystery here, and again, I'm part guessing and part knowing. 
Verse 55 in this story of Stephen, the waiter, it says that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You know, his body, his mind, and his spirit were set on other things. You know, I often say this to you, and I know it's difficult, and this is something I really believe the Western church has got to recapture. We've got to realize that we have a passport on our hearts that says citizen of heaven, and that is a higher authority. It's a higher authority than, you know, the, the, the passport that you have in your, you know, safety deposit box or under the mattress or something like that. We are citizens of heaven. And it's as we keep our reading this book and keep that work of personal prayer and ministry going, prayer and study of God's Word, we begin to become almost distracted by the presence of God. Uh, I, I'm, I'm talking things that are even a little beyond me because I'm still trying to work it out myself. But this is the truth. This is the witness of the saints through the centuries. That actually, you begin to... First of all, your toe starts to tap to another tune. It's out of sync and out of step with the music of our time and culture. But it has an internal rhythm, an eternal melody... It's something to do with the worship of heaven. And we begin to sway and then dance to that melody, preparing us for that great dance we'll do in heaven. Thank you. And that's what begins to happen with Christians. We, we become of this world but not of this world. We engage more fully with the pain and suffering of this world, but we're not of this world. And Stephen, in that moment of great testing, great trial, when they're actually throwing rocks at him now for his troubles, and all he did was ever feed a few widows, heal a few sick people. There's something about him. He's dancing to another tune. And then finally, and wow, this is way beyond me, as he, as he crumples, as they continue to rain stones upon him, the last thing he said, has this, he has a heart full of mercy because he prays. He prays for those who are stoning him. Verse 6, he says, Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. <laughs> That's the Jesus thing. There's a work of transformation. Remember what I was saying about the watchman pray that we become more like Christ? Now there's, there's the finished article. You know, Jesus on the cross, as he was dying, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And Stephen, as he crumpled, and just before, as the word of God, wonderful poetry says, he fell asleep. He didn't die screaming and groveling in the dust like a, a dog that was being kicked to death, which was effectively, actually what was happening. He fell asleep with a prayer on his lips. Father, forgive them. Have mercy on them. Man, that is way beyond me. Is it way beyond you? 
I don't know, there's one or two glowing people out there. Maybe, maybe you're ahead on this than me. And if this feels all too much, you think, I'm just a flipping sales manager at a widget firm in Slough. What's he talking about, you know? Back to a little verse that I hopefully encouraged with you, you with earlier on. Ephesians 2.10. You know, listen. We're all God's workmanship. Verse two, chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God... God, remember, prepared in advance for us to do. He's on the case. As I often say, he's not like the swimming coach striding up and down the side of the pool with a big megaphone shouting encouragement and abuse in equal measure. He's in the water with us. He's supporting us. He knows what it is like to be out of breath, to be struggling for breath, to be thinking you're going to drown, you're going to die. He's there with us, working with us, working on us. And really all we can bring to this party is a humble and yielded heart. Stephen, the waiter. Next time you're in a restaurant, remember Stephen... Give the waiter or waitress a big tip and say, God bless you. God has plans for you. <laughs> Let's have the worship team back up. Let's all stand.